0: This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com.
1: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and
0: inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say, we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Antoine Fisher is an award winning writer and director whose life story was captured in the film Antoine Fisher, which was directed by Denzel Washington, who also co starred in the film with actor Derek Luke in the title role. Antoine's life inspired a Hollywood movie because he was born in prison to a single mother and spent most of his childhood with a foster care family where he was physically, sexually, and emotionally abused. And yet, Antoine managed to overcome the many traumas he suffered when he joined the Navy where he met Lieutenant Commander Williams, a psychiatrist who helped Antoine turn his life around. In today's podcast, we're going to talk to Antoine about resilience, dreams, forgiveness, gratitude, and even humor. Hi, Antoine. Welcome to the show.
2: My pleasure.
1: We remember when we met you at Celebration of Reading and you changed our lives profoundly and the lives of so many there. And so we're just thrilled you're joining us today.
2: You know, celebration of reading meant a lot to me as well. It was the first time I ever read in front of an audience before. I think it was in Florida at Jeb's celebration. Mm-hmm. and uh, That's right. It was overwhelming for me because I had never done it before.
1: Well, you were amazing. Amazing. We thought it would be great if you gave a brief history of who you are and your upbringing and that kind of thing, and then we'll move into some very serious questions <laughs> for you.
2: I was born in a prison. My mother was 17. She couldn't keep me there, so they put me in an orphanage in Cleveland where I grew up. I went to one foster home, then another one where I was abused for like 12 years, me and my foster siblings. At 14, I was taken from there and put in an orphanage. And I stayed in the orphanage for seven months, and then they couldn't find anyone who would take a teenage boy. So they put me in a reform school in western Pennsylvania, where I stayed until I graduated from high school. Then I, they made me an emancipated minor. I was 17. I was living on the streets there in Cleveland. I didn't have a family, so I was just living on the streets until two days before Christmas. I saw the sign that said, join the Navy and see the world. Since so I didn't have anything else to do, nothing <laughs> pressing. <laughs> I went inside, and that night I was in Great Lakes, Illinois, in boot camp. And I graduated from boot camp and stayed in the Navy for 11 years. I wanted to take care of myself, so... I got out and uh, became a federal corrections officer, and I did that for three years. It didn't suit my personality to be a corrections officer. So I heard that Sony Pictures was hiring security guards, and I went over there, and they hired me. And I started thinking about my real family, and I remember this Navy psychiatrist had told me that one day I should look for them. And I thought about him a lot and the things he told me, and uh, so I decided to start looking for them, and I found them using an Ohio Bill telephone book. And I went to meet them, and when I came back to Sony, they said that they thought that my story would make for a great film. I kept insisting on writing it. They kept saying no because I had never went to college. I didn't have any writing experience, and I never went to film school. So I decided since it was my story, I didn't have to ask anybody anyway. So I got (laughs) some legal pads and started writing it by hand, and I gave it to a producer who would come on and off the lot a lot, and I felt familiar with him. I gave it to him, about three weeks later, he told me that I had writing talent and he said that I needed to learn how to write a screenplay and he would teach me. And if I wanted to leave that job at security, that they had an office for me on the 20th Century Fox lot. So of course, turned in my badge (laughs) and, uh, and went over to Fox. And after four months, you know, I had never had any money before, but he called me and said, I sold your screenplay. I'm dyslexic. So when I went to get the check, I thought it was $2,500. But it was actually a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, my (laughs) God. By the time I got got to the bank, I was so nervous about the check I had. It was like, are they going to think it was mine? But anyway, that's basically my story. And I've been a writer for 26 years working here in Hollywood.
1: Amazing story. Trisha and I, we are in the health and wellness field. That's what this podcast health gig is all about and so in the mindfulness field we talk a lot about resilience and when we think of you we think of resilience and the ability to bounce back from adversity. You had to be so incredibly resilient to survive the childhood you did. What do you feel were the qualities that made you so resilient as a child?
2: I pretended a lot Mm. and it's the same imagination I used to write stories here in Hollywood. I never let go of a kind of innocence, a belief that things could be different. While my foster brother and sister, they accepted everything that was happening. They only dealt with what was real. I would take time out and pretend that my relationship with the people who I was living with was better. And Mm. it actually gave me a physical good feeling. And that eventually wore off, but I learned that my imagination was a way to escape.
1: How did you manage to keep that going? Because you suffered a lot of years of abuse.
2: Well, it was hard. And there came a time where it didn't work anymore. Mm. But it would work for something. Like, for example, when I went to school, I had a teacher who had me for the fourth, fifth and the sixth grade. She kept the same students. It was like a family for me and inside of that world where i spent a lot of the day i would continue to use my imagination like this was my real family and the teacher was the person who cared about me the most and i cared about all of them and even now i made an effort to stay in contact with all of them and so when i went home i had to put on another kind of mind it was basically to protect myself i was always thinking and I learned how to disappear right in front of people. Mm-hmm. I had to watch people and I understood each individual in the house based on what I knew about them. I knew how to move around them. I developed this way of disappearing. and, and Yeah, like a skill. Maybe, yes, yeah, so it became a real skill. And even that is another thing I use when I write stories. You have to be able to hear people's voice. Everyone doesn't sound the same. No one speaks the same. And they have different intonations in, in the way they speak and when they want to tell you things. I learned that as a kid and a captain.
1: You sort of cultivated an awareness of what was going on around you, which helped you navigate what was going on.
2: Yes. And music was a big distraction, something that really helped me get through the day. Mm. And I learned that crying helped me. Sometimes I would go behind the garage and I would think about things, and I would just cry. Sometimes about half an hour. Sometimes I'd sit there for a couple of hours, not just crying the whole time, but on and off. But when I was done, it always gave me a feeling of relief. I always felt like it was the one thing that I could do to relieve the pressure.
0: That's so true. You were quoted as saying, I think back on a childhood full of longing for belonging and see my life now as what I have created out of my dreams.
2: Well it's true. I remember Cleveland is a harsh weather wise. It's really hot in mm-hmm. the summer, really cold in the winter, and I would always look at these magazines and see palm trees and I always wanted to live in California, I felt. And I felt that because I wanted to do that, just like I wanted to write my story and I wanted to join the Navy. I wanted to be a good person. And mm-hmm. it was hard to be a good person given everything that I was feeling. Being a good person, meaning that I knew I couldn't get in trouble because there would be no one to come to rescue me. So that was something different about me and the friends that I had. But it was hard to keep myself in check sometimes because I was so angry. I didn't really understand why I was angry, but I went to this naval psychiatrist, and he told me that I had every right to feel angry based on what I had told him. And then that kind of gave me a relief, because then I felt guilty about feeling angry, because I was told that I should be grateful for everything, given my circumstance.
0: Antoine, do you still keep in touch with people from your past?
2: My teacher, Ms. Prophet, I do. And I spoke to one of my good childhood friends, who was also in Ms. Prophet's class. And I met him when we were 10 years old. And I thought some people are born and you have brothers and sisters and family. And Mm -hmm. at some point in my life, I got this idea that I was in the world alone, but I wasn't in the world alone altogether because I did have friends and I could see these people and keep in contact with them and make them my family is what I did.
0: Oftentimes, we talk about people living from the story in their head, and it's sometimes negative. But in your case, you were able to tell yourself a story that really, I guess, is a dream and then live from that story.
2: And I didn't want what my foster family, what they said about me, I didn't want it to be true. And they would always say that. I would never amount to anything that nobody wanted me and not to think that they wanted me because I was living in their house. It wasn't just me. They were saying this too. It was my foster siblings as well. And I just wanted to be liked. So I just tried very hard. But I was having more success at being liked by the children I met in the community and my teachers at school. Mm-hmm. So I decided to focus more on that, those people.
1: Our natural families are not always the best situation, so creating our own families is definitely an option, and a good option in so many cases, obviously in your case.
0: It's just mind-boggling, and I guess this is stating the obvious, that at such a young age, you were so wise.
2: Now I think about it now, I'm like really grateful that I was that kind of kid. I, I was a really reflective kid, you know? I didn't just live through the day and let the day pass without thinking about it. If I was too distracted, there would always come a time when I would think about the things that bothered me the most or the things that made me feel really good.
0: You would feel your feelings, yeah. I yeah. Would
2: physically feel it. I always felt, too, that it was important to remember the unhappy things that happened to me as well as the good things, not just so they wouldn't happen again, but I came to describe it this way. If I was a building and I was made of bricks, and some of the bricks represented the unhappy memories and times that I had, and some of the bricks were the good memories and good times that I had, I have to remember all of the bricks and keep them all together because they are the bricks that make you know me as a person, the building of my life. And so if I took out the ones I didn't like, the building would fall down. My story, the unhappy part, was the part that gave me an opportunity to make a better life for my own kids. Right. Right. telling it.
1: It's the building blocks that count, or in your case,
0: as you said, the bricks. We were wondering how you think as a culture we can begin to value kindness and compassion more.
2: When I was younger, in general, I didn't know about a lot of racism or hatefulness. I grew up in an all-black neighborhood. I didn't know much about the world outside of that. You know, as you grow up and you get older, I do think that I should have been prepared more by somebody about the world and the way that I would be treated as an African American. I wish that people could just see people as people because, you know, when I was in the Navy, they'd jam us all together. They didn't care what or race or if you like country music or soul music or rock and roll. They didn't put you all together and you have to work together. You have to live together and sleep so close, probably closer than you sleep with your husband or wife, you know, <laughs> be in dangerous situations together. And you do forget about race and you forget about the differences. I started liking country music because <laughs> I was hearing it all the time. <laughs> so I think people being separated and being suspicious of others when mm-hmm. their life is not going great and they see other people and they, think that they have an advantage that they don't deserve i think people just evolve and then you have agitators who take that knowledge and they'll stir people up i just think that you can meet really great people and people are not so great and i just feel that people should give one another a chance one of the best things i ever did was join the navy Mm -hmm. because it did open my eyes to see that people are just people and people should give others a chance
0: I
1: love that and it reminds me of my own dad who joined the Navy, different circumstances than your life of course, but one of his jobs was to read the incoming mail because they had to censor the mail that came onto the carrier. He loved that because he was able to see into the lives of his fellow crew and learn about them and realize, just as you said Antoine, that we're all similar, we're all just people. I think he would agree with you that the Navy formed his life in a huge
2: way. I think the Navy caught me up. I was behind in a lot of ways, you know, because I didn't get a lot of interaction as a kid that I would have, but the Navy expected something from me that I didn't expect from myself and they would not accept things like i can't do that you can't trust me to do that they expect you to do it and once i had started accomplishing things that i thought that i could never have accomplished or anyone should ever trust me to do because i didn't have that kind of confidence when i joined the navy i had no self-esteem but by the time i left the navy i was ready i was ready for the world
0: we wanted to talk to you about the importance of forgiveness how does forgiveness play for you?
2: I have my own philosophy about forgiveness. I think forgiveness is something you do for yourself. For example, if I hurt someone, if I punch someone in the eye, and then I say, oh, you have to forgive me, you know, you should forgive me because I'm asking for forgiveness. Well, no one owes me anything I owe because I'm the one that hurts the person. I should say more like I apologize for the pain I caused, and I hope you can get past this pain I caused, and I'm going to work on myself, and I want you to watch me and see that I'm going to change. You know, if someone punches me, and I say, I forgive you. I don't have the ability to change their lives. I can't make them a better person. They have to understand that I love myself. With that knowledge, they have to know that if I love myself, either I have to separate myself from that person so I won't continue to be hurt by that person. I think that forgiveness is something you do for yourself.
1: Lieutenant Commander Williams wanted you to find your birth mother and forgive her for the pain she put you through. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: I never really got the concept of mother and father and that kind of thing. So when I met my mother, they pointed her out to me and said, well, this is your mother. And I didn't feel anything. It was just like somebody I happened to be seeing. I did like her. She was honest. I could say that because if you ask her a question, she'll tell you, and she won't sugarcoat it, which I came to appreciate because there wasn't a lot of time that we had together. We were so different that we never really communicated like I think a lot of people do with friends or with their parents. She passed away in 2010, and they called me and told me she had passed away, and I they asked me, asking, was I coming to her service? I told them I couldn't come, but I wrote something for them to read there. And about two weeks after that, I had a cousin that called me and said, hey, Antoine, why are you doing this? I said, doing what? He said, you know, your mother is still at the funeral home. I said, well, I thought you guys said you were going to handle all that. They said, we will, but you're her next of kin, and we can't do anything until you sign all the paperwork. I had never been responsible for anybody before, and I never knew what next of kin meant. So I was happy to do everything that needed to be done. And I felt proud that I was the only one that could do this for her. And it made me feel probably like a son might feel. I never held anything against her. I remember my own childhood and how difficult it was. In the 50s, I couldn't imagine being a girl whose mother died when she was 13 and her father was unreliable, trying to get on in the world and just learn how not to judge people who don't have an intact family and all our support.
1: It sounds like there's a lot of acceptance because people who go through similar circumstances might be saying, why me, and so unfair. And it sounds like you've really embraced acceptance.
2: Well, when I was younger, I did do that. And I cried a lot and asked God why I have to be in this situation. My case was a part of child welfare. But when they sent me to reform school, they transferred my case to the juvenile justice system. So it looked like on paper that I was a juvenile delinquent, like I was a bad kid, but I wasn't. It's just that nobody would take a teenage boy and I wound up in a juvenile facility. When I graduated, this guy came. He was like my supervisor, like parole guy. And I had never met him before. And he came to me and said, hey, are you ready to go back to Cleveland? And I said, am I going back to Cleveland? He said, yes, you graduated you're going to be 18 in a couple of months, you're being emancipated. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, I explained it to you on the way back to Cleveland. So he was driving, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, and he was telling me that the county and the state would not be responsible for me anymore and that I would have to find a job and take care of myself. And I had two months in which to do it. And I was so angry, he told me, don't feel sorry for yourself because it doesn't do any good. And I get even more angry. But I thought about what he said, and I had told someone later on my story, and they didn't care at all. And I Mm -hmm. remembered him, and I thought, maybe he's right. It doesn't do any good. So I had to work on that. It took a bit because I felt that I had a right to feel sorry for myself, but he was right. It doesn't do any good.
0: I remember you saying those first days when you were out on the street and homeless, you would sit in front of a home that had a family and you would imagine what it was like to be with that family.
2: Well, I would see that all the time. But when I was homeless, I would see, you know, in winter, I was in Cleveland in the snow with no place to go. And, you know, people were coming home from working, going into their homes and their family and you could see the lights on. I felt like sometimes I was walking through a postcard. You know, Cleveland gets a lot of snow in that particular year. The snow wasn't as deep as it usually was, and I felt that God was having mercy on me because I knew winters in Cleveland to be worse. Even when I was younger, my childhood friends' parents would buy them clothes at Easter time, probably the clothes that they would wear to church on Easter they would wear on the first day of school, and I never got anything new, and I always felt like, wow, you know, this must be what it would be like—an expression of love—to buy clothes and get him a nice haircut and send him to school. I mean, my friend Jesse let me borrow a pair of pants, so I snuck over to his house, get out of the house early, went to his house, and I wore his pants. And I forgot to go back to his house to take them off, and I came in the house with those pants on, and everybody just looked at me. They didn't never say anything. Maybe they knew what I had done, but I was really afraid. (laughs) I just felt that seeing a family together, you know, I was in a family, but they made it clear that I wasn't a part of the family. So I didn't venture off into imagining that they cared anything more than what they were doing for me.
1: And yet it seems like gratitude plays a huge role in your life.
2: I did understand that I should express gratitude. And I did understand that nobody owed me anything. I didn't articulate that in my mind when I was younger that way. But I understood that if someone did something for me, it was because they wanted to. And I was always grateful for that.
1: Do you feel like you're more grateful than most people because you started out with so little?
2: Yes. You know, even with my own kids, they don't know and they shouldn't have to know how difficult life could be. They'll Mm -hmm. find out later when they get old enough, you know. Mm -hmm that things will always work out the way you want, and you can't warn them either because they don't believe you. It's kind of a blessing and a curse, a blessing that I came through it. As a kid, I would have taught as a curse, but if it wasn't for all that had happened, I wouldn't have a story to tell. And as I go around the country and talk, to different groups and people and organizations, I realized there's a lot of people who are in pain and I have gotten past a lot of things. And there are people who write me from other countries, Japan, United Arab Emirates, people who have similar lives. They've seen the movie. The book has been translated into three or four languages. So I may not be unique in the story that I had, but the outcome is kind of unique. And then when they see that story, they realize, oh, wow, this is somebody who got past a lot of, things that I haven't gotten past, and maybe he can tell me more. Some people are just satisfied reading the book, just knowing that someone got past some of those things. But I had help all along the way from my teacher, even just being an inspiration in the Navy. I used to walk around with my head down, and I didn't even realize it was my usual posture, but uh, there was a chief petty officer who hated to see me walking with my head down. I hated his guts. But it turned out he was the best person to be in my life at that time because I had just started in the Navy and I didn't realize that that was a habit that I needed to correct.
1: It sounds like you had many mentors in your life and tell us what you think the importance of mentors are.
2: The best mentors always seem like tour (laughs) (laughs) mentor. That's so true. (laughs) We need to tell our kids that. (laughs) But it's true. Because of those mentors, I wound up being a mentor myself. It's important, for example, my older daughter. I remember she was kind of timid. I would always try to show her how to be more assertive and that kind of thing. But someone suggested that I put her in soccer. So uh, she became a really great soccer player. And in fact, the coach of the soccer team, he had a little more influence with her than I did because he wasn't her dad. So if he said, you should do this, don't let them push you, push back, you know, doing the coaching thing. And then she started doing it. And this is how she learned how to assert itself through sports. It does take other people to help you raise your kids. You could have all the money in the world. You could have all the help around the house. But... Someone who really cares about just kids in general and have the patience, it really helped us, mentors, you know.
1: As somebody said, it takes a village.
2: (laughs) It sure does. You know, I'm dyslexic, and I do have anxiety also. And I never have taken anything for anxiety, but I have anxiety attacks. And we had a celebration of reading on the carrier, and I had a panic attack. I couldn't read usually i can get through things because i know my own story very well and of course i wrote the book so some of it i remember so i kind of blank everything out and i'm kind of like in a tunnel but that day i could see everybody i was excited to be on the ship because i hadn't been on the navy ship in a long time and so i couldn't get into my head space and then i thought i could do it and then it just came over me like a dread you know for example The studio just sent me a screenplay to read. I had to read it and comprehend it because they wanted to know my answer pretty quick. I've learned how to get around and do certain things. This is my luck. I'm dyslexic and I get a job as a writer.
0: Right, (laughs) that was my question. I mean, here you are, dyslexic. What was your formal education like?
2: I did high school, you know, Mm -hmm. just the lower grades. But in those days, the Cleveland Public School System's It was like going to private school because the teachers were respected. We loved the teachers. You know, the teachers lived in the neighborhood, so did the police officers. And it was because of segregation, basically, because in those days, you couldn't move away from the east side, really. So what it did was make a really whole community. All the preachers who lived in the neighborhood were there, the plumbers, the firemen who were black, the police officers who were black if you got in trouble your parents just walk you down the street to the police officer and have them sit on the porch and talk to you they take you to the police athletic league around the corner it was like a tight-knit community but after the housing laws changed people start moving and leaving so the community kind of got fragmented and the only people who stayed was the people who couldn't afford to leave mm. so it kind of destroyed the community but i remember after school I'm sitting on the porch, and I see my teacher walking down the street with her husband.
0: And that made you feel part of the community. Even though what was going on at home, you still knew you belonged.
2: Yeah, and you see him in church on Sunday. She was in the choir. It's easy to imagine yourself being a family member when you see them, not just in school, but at the grocery store or at church, or you see her husband driving down the street, and he waves at you because he knows I've been in his wife's class for three years. It's nothing like community to help raise you. Even just seeing an upstanding man who takes care of his family, the idea of that, you know, you want that. You want to be that way, too, when you're deciding what kind of person you want to be. His front yard was very small, and but he loved his garden and his yard, and he would chip balls in the front lawn. Just thought that was really cool. I didn't even know what he was doing. I thought he was playing golf, and I did <laughs> chipping balls or whatever he was doing I just like the idea of it.
1: It reminds me of an analogy of we're all separate trees, but yet under the ground, our roots are intertwined, and that's the community that we're all connected. And if we can remember that, That's obviously what saved you in many ways because you didn't have your family home intact, really, but you had the community, the teacher, the policeman, and people knowing your
0: name and knowing you existed. And you knowing that you had the power to decide what kind of man you wanted to be. I mean, that's incredible
2: there were examples all around you know there were all these guys who were the kind of person I wanted to be like they all had dignity you could see it the way they held themselves I didn't know how to hold myself like that I had my head down all the time but I did admire anybody's ability to walk straight and I remember when I was in the Navy I was a E5 sluggish sergeant but I was a second-class petty officer and there was this kid redhead kid from Appalachia. He was going to be working for me, and I saw him coming. He had big, bright red hair, and he walked up to me. I fancied myself as a, kind of a tough guy at this point, you know? So he walked up to me and stuck his hand out and said, How you doing? I heard you. I uh, paid out sufficient. My name is Linquist. I never shook anybody's hand out introduced myself like that. It was kind of intimidating, but I liked it, and I thought it was corny. It sounded a little corny to me. I couldn't get it out of my head. He could just walk up to somebody who he was going to be working for, stick his hand out and introduce himself. I liked that. And I practiced that. Then it started to become natural to me. I would learn from other people. I would pick up things like that.
0: And create the life you want to live. Such a good lesson. the
2: world fathered me, but I had to pick and choose. It was my job to choose the right example. The world
0: fathered you.
2: Oh, yeah. I remember we would go overseas and I would be in Hong Kong and I would be walking down the street and the shopkeeper would remember me from the many times I had been there. They would wave and yell at me. I would wave back and they'd ask me, where have I been? I'm like, I'm an American. I've been in the States. But, you know, people had seen me so many times that they felt like they knew me. And I felt like, wow, kind of a man of the world. I know people in Japan (laughs) and i all know them well, but they know me when they see me. So that was an education, too, an experience that a lot of people don't have. It gives you confidence and self-esteem.
1: What strikes me about listening to you, Antoine, is your willingness to take responsibility for your own well-being. Rather than blame, you've decided who you wanted to be and have taken that on as your responsibility and not everyone else's.
2: Thank you for that. You know, a lot of people expect me to be angry uh, with my foster parents. And And we would
0: add rightly so, you know.
2: But, you know, at some point you have to start thinking about it. The commander told me this when I was in the Navy. You know, you have to have empathy for other people. You have to think about them and the time in which they grew up you know, their philosophy, their educational level, even if you have to add some possibilities of the reason why they behave the way they did, because you have to survive and you can't have this with you in the way you're carrying it. You just have to take responsibility for yourself. Now that you're not under their tutelage, you have to think about also the good things that you remember about them. And then your feelings have changed. You have to have some empathy for people. Mm-hmm. And if you want to survive and do well in life, you can't carry around. That's too heavy.
1: Antoine, in looking back over your life, if you had to name one quality above all the others that's helped you to be as successful as you are, what would you say that is?
2: You have to be resilient and you can't give up. You have to stick with everything that you really want to do. Like, Writing was hard because you have to read, and so I had to accept that I wasn't going to get away with not reading. And then your mother invites me to participate in celebration of reading. How could I turn it down? It was terrifying—not that it was her, but she was a little
1: <laughs> terrifying sometimes, <laughs> in a good way.
2: Yeah, I could feel everything. Trust me. <laughs> but she really encouraged me, so I wanted to do it, and I had never done it before. And I remember. When I did it in Florida for the first time, it was overwhelming for me. And then when I lifted my head, I, I couldn't hold back the tears because I just wish some of the people who knew me before could see me reading in front of all these strangers. And I lift my head and I'm, who's standing there? Jeb. Jeb came to rescue me.
1: <laughs> Good. Antoine, one thing people don't know about you is you're
0: very funny. Hysterical.
2: Am I funny? You are you're so very funny.
0: <laughs> when did you start realizing the importance of humor?
2: When I realized that it was going to help me survive. When I was a little kid, I was funny to other people, but it wasn't necessarily funny to me. Sometimes I would win friends that way. Sometimes it would go overboard and it would drift into areas where people wouldn't take me serious. So I had to learn how to calibrate my humor. But it was a way to win friends as a kid. I don't want to say it's a talent, but it's kind of a knack, a quick wit I am, I think. Antoine,
1: I know we're running out of time, but one last question. What is life like for you now?
2: Life is great, you know. I'm married, uh, and I've been married for 23 years. I have two daughters. One's at UCSB, and one goes to a Catholic school here in Notre Dame. Everyone's happy. I may, sounds like I will be, getting, after 26 years, My first opportunity to direct a major motion picture.
0: Yay! Oh, Antoine, when will you know?
2: I'll know in a couple days, maybe. I'll send you the article. Will you? Okay. In the trades, yes.
1: We just want to thank you, Antoine. First of all, we love you. We think you're amazing. We're just grateful to you for taking the time.
0: We hope we see you soon.
2: Yes.